Let us pray. Almighty God, you have commanded us to come to you, to bow before you, to pray to you, to seek after you. Fulfill our prayers this day and draw near and give us that most wondrous gift, your Holy Spirit, that we would evermore be transformed, evermore be changed, and evermore be brought into your presence and made into the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all through that very same Lord Jesus. Amen. Some Sundays it can be really hard to figure out what to preach from, especially when you get passages like the ones we've had today. Hearing about Moses interceding on behalf of the people of Sodom. Hearing Paul's words about being rooted in Christ. Of hearing of the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ bodily. And through that, him overcoming all things, overcoming the principalities and the princes of the air in this world in order to bring about salvation. Or to hear about the Lord's Prayer in a parable that I think we all can learn a great deal from. But especially with our Genesis passage and our Luke passage, it's about prayer. And even our collect of the day has summed up all of this nicely for us. Everything we need to know. We prayed, Almighty and everlasting God, You are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And to give more than we either desire or deserve. That is our God. He's always ready to hear us. He's always ready to give more. It's in the humdrum of life that it can be so easy that we forget to pray. To remember that God is in our midst. To remember that He'll answer, that He'll respond. And more often than not, He gives exactly what we need. In fact, it's not more often than not. It's always He gives us what we need. Even if we don't recognize it, He responds and He gives exactly what we need because He's ready to listen. Because He looks beyond our immediate asking. For He knows deep down what it is. As Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, the groanings deep down the Spirit leads and brings them to the Father. And Jesus' words at the end of our Gospel lesson remind us of that. In verse 13, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Reminding us that at the bottom of everything, the Father is answering the prayer of giving the Spirit. That at the bottom of every one of our requests is a desire for the Spirit to come and be with us, to dwell with us, to lead and guide us. For a desire for Him to come and fill us so that we can be brought to the Father more more nearly, and to reveal the Father's will so that we can might pray even more effectively. So in our gospel passage, I want us to understand that it isn't about our persistence. That's not the main thing. Persistence, yes, is part of our prayers. Jesus teaches that elsewhere, and it's even in our passage some. But that persistence is not the main idea. That's not the main point Jesus is teaching in this parable of the friend at midnight. You hear persistence in Genesis. Abraham speaking to, the, to God himself. Persisting 
and standing before Him and asking for more and more, asking and lowering that number of righteous people who remains near in order to bring that before the Father. But there's something deeper than persistence that's part of prayer. And that deeper thing is what Jesus sums up in verse 2. When He teaches one of His disciples, teaches His disciples how to pray, they've seen Him praying. And one of them comes up and says, Jesus, teach us how to pray as John has taught others. Of course, we've heard this before. We heard that in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gave the fuller version of the Lord's Prayer. I think that this is another incident in Jesus' ministry. After all, it's easy to recycle. Events come up over and over again. People ask the same questions. So it makes sense that at another time in Jesus' ministry, one of His disciples, because He has a whole plethora of disciples, not just the twelve, not just the 70 or 72, but he has all kinds of people following him from place to place and people coming to him when he comes into a village. And so he has one of them come up and says, teach us to pray. And the first word that Jesus gives to them is, Father. He says, when you pray, say, Father. He tells us how to approach God, that God is our Father. But we live in a broken world. And that simple name is one that can be hard for people. So Jesus carefully lays out what it means that we can come to God as Father, that we can call Him our Father. And so I want to focus in on this parable of the friend at midnight. Our, our passage here in the Gospel, it's nice that it breaks down into three neat chunks. You've got the teaching about the Lord's Prayer, how to pray. You've got the friend at midnight. And then beginning at verse 9, you have the last section where Jesus then gives some more teaching on prayer. It's nice when the passage breaks down that easily. And so we're going to focus in on this friend at midnight and think about it and how understanding this parable helps us to understand what Jesus says after that, but also helps us to understand why we can come to God as Father. Why we can look at God and trust Him more fully than any fallen earthly father that we know. Because God is greater than any father we know. Any father who will help us, God is greater than that. Because God Himself comes down to us and He will give us the aid that we precisely need. And so we're going to understand this parable, but as we get into it, we have to unlearn what we've always been taught, I think, about this parable. Over the years as I've studied it, I've become more and more convinced that we've misunderstood a single word which shifts the meaning of the parable a little bit. It doesn't completely undo everything you've learned about it, but it helps us to hone in more deeply, more fully, and understand exactly the point that Jesus is bringing before us, that this parable isn't about us persisting in prayer. This parable is actually about God coming to us and giving us everything that we need. This, prayer is a, this parable is about God's faithfulness toward us when we don't deserve it. To summarize what most commentaries will say that I've read this week, they'll sum it up like this. A traveler shows up at a friend's house, and that friend is to host him and feed him. And so that friend goes to a neighbor because he doesn't have food. He asks this neighbor for help. The neighbor doesn't want to because his family's in bed. His kids are asleep and it will just interrupt everything. So the one who's to host the traveler persists in needing help. 
And finally the neighbor gets up, finally the neighbor begrudgingly says, fine, I'll give you what you want, just leave, just go away. So then we come back and we apply it saying, therefore we should persist in prayer always. We should always persist and berate God until God gives us what we want. That doesn't sound like the God I want to worship, that I have to berate him to get him to answer me. That I have to beat down the doors of heaven when he keeps saying no, no, no to me until he finally gives in to my wants, to my demands, to my prayers. The problem is this doesn't wrestle with the context, with this Middle Eastern context. It doesn't wrestle with this hard to understand word, this word that gets translated in the ESV as impudence. And it doesn't even understand exactly what the question is that Jesus is asking in this parable. So let's analyze it bit by bit. Let's look at what Jesus is telling us and how this comes to be about God's faithfulness and not about our persistence. Many of the things that I'm drawing from is, again, as I've said in the past, Kenneth Bailey, he is a wonderful biblical scholar, spent 40 years living in the Middle East, studying the culture, teaching at a university there in Israel. I think it's Israel. No, Beirut. He, but he spent his whole life teaching and understanding the Bible in the context of the Middle East, understanding that culture. He wrote a wonderful, full-length scholarly work on the Gospel of Luke, looking at these parables. And so I'm drawing some from him today and his understanding and digging into this text and the context. And the first thing that he points out and that I absolutely agree with is in verse 5, Jesus says, Which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. Where most of us, <clears throat> where so many of us, I think, go wrong is we cut Jesus' question off at the end of verse 6. Where the host says, I have nothing to set before him. And we cut that off and then verse 7 is the neighbor's actual response. But the actual entirety of this, 5, 6, and 7, are all part of Jesus' setup of the parable. He's saying, can you imagine this crazy scenario? <clears throat> can you imagine you have someone come to visit you and you don't have food, and so you go to your neighbor and he says, no, I'm not going to help you. No way, Jose. That's the question. That's the scene that Jesus is setting up. He's asking the people a question, and he's expecting everyone in the crowd to be like, no! No, that's not what would happen. That'd be like me telling a story. Imagine your house caught on fire at night and you ran to your neighbor and said, I need help. And your neighbor's like, sorry, the kids are in bed. I can't do that. We'd all be like, that's crazy. That would never happen in this world. That's what Jesus does here in this Middle Eastern context. If you went to a neighbor in the middle of the night and asked for help, they would get out of bed and give you help. They were bound to do that. They were bound and they wanted to. They were committed to helping one another to helping each other grow and to help each other accomplish the things that are going on. No one could ever imagine that scenario of the neighbor saying, I can't help. Hospitality and honor were the foundation of everything they did. And so it would be a huge dishonor to not help the neighbor. It would be shameful to not help when there was a legitimate need, regardless of the inconvenience, regardless of the situation. The neighbor, there would be neighborly commitment to help. And besides, on top of that, if your neighbor really did say no and you're living in a town, 
You just go to the next person's house, ask them for help. And you know what would happen? Those people would be like, sure, I'll help you. I can't believe so-and-so refused to help you. Everyone's going to hear about this tomorrow. His name is going to be mud by tomorrow afternoon because he refused to help a neighbor in need. What a jerk. I'll make sure that everyone knows. And it's not because they were busybodies and gossips, but it was because if you refuse to honor a commitment, then you should be shamed for not honoring it. You should be reminded that you are committed to helping one another. If anyone in this community refuses to help someone, then our community will fall apart. Our community will break apart. And so you are called on to always help. And if you refuse service, if you refuse to help, if you refuse to be hospitable, even in hard situations, and you are shameful, you are bringing shame on our community and making us look like a byword. Hospitality and honor are the foundation. It means everything. <clears throat> and so we're probably a little bit astonished at this idea. But if you grew up in a small town, you probably know a little bit about this. Word travels fast. If there's any obligation that someone has refused to meet, everyone knows about it. Everyone realizes, well, I can't trust him to help me in need. He's not going to. He didn't help this other guy, and it was something easy. How, how would I ever trust that person? Word travels fast, and that is what would happen if this neighbor said, no can do. So that's the, that's the question Jesus set up. Can you imagine someone doing this and everyone says no and he agrees with them, you're right. No neighbor worth their salt would ever say no to helping someone in need in their community. And so here is the actual response beginning in verse 8. And simply in verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Impudence is the key word in this phrase. But it's a hard word. The Greek underneath it is one that only occurs in this passage. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the Greek word because I know I will butcher it. But it's a unique word that only occurs here in the New Testament. And so it's hard to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. However, the word itself occurs in the Septuagint fairly regularly, and it occurs throughout Greek literature fairly regularly. And in all those contexts, this particular Greek word means shamelessness. It means to act without shame, to act without a sense of shame in your behavior. And so in much literature, when it's used outside of this one place in the New Testament, it has a very negative connotation. I mean, when you think of someone who's shameless, we think of someone who, no matter what you say, they're not going to do the right thing. They have no sense of duty. They have no sense of honor. They have no sense of accomplishing the good that another needs. They're all about themselves, and so they act in a shameless way. But again, Kenneth Bailey, in drawing this out and looking at this and putting it in this context, shamelessness is actually not totally negative. In fact, let's take the word very literally, to act without shame, to do that which is not shameful. In his commentary, that is how he interprets it. He says that when it says that he acted impudently, he acted without shame, it means that he's going to do what he's committed to doing. He's going to act in an honorable way. 
He's not going to worry about the hardships of getting up out of bed. After all, they lived in one-room houses, so the bedroom would kind of be off to the back, and everyone would be sleeping all together. The bedroom, the people would be sleeping in the back of the one-room house. There was no actual bedroom. And they'd all be kind of huddled together, sleeping on mats all near each other. And so for one person to get up is going to rouse and disturb others. But this neighbor is going to act. This one who was asleep is going to get up. As soon as he hears his neighbor speak through the window and say, friend, I need help, he's going to be like, give me a moment. I'll be right there to help. And he gets up and will help. Even if the kids wake up, even if someone stops crying, there will be that sense of, I have to help because he is a neighbor in need. And the other aspect of how we sometimes misunderstand this is we get confused about who the he is in verse 8. We'll start off thinking of he as the one who's asleep, but then when we get to that impudence, sometimes translated as persistence, we apply it to the host. We'll sit there and be like, and say, I tell you though, the sleeper will not get up, and the sleeper will give him anything because the sleeper is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, the sleeper will rise and give him whatever he needs. And that's not an appropriate approach either. If you break it down line by line, little phrase by little phrase, you'll see that the sleeper is the one who is the key person. He is the subject of every statement. And so when you get to that, well, whose impudence, whose shamelessness, whose persistence, and persistence is not a very good translation in this case, it's the sleeper's. His impudence, his willingness to just do what needs to be done is what he is going to do. And he's going to want to act without shame. And because he wants to act without shame, that means he wants to honor commitment. He wants to do what is due to be done for his neighbor. He will do his duty to give whatever is necessary, no matter what. He's committed to that honor and the friendship of the community, even in the midst of it being the most uncomfortable, inconvenient thing to do in the middle of the night. It's important for us to wrestle with that reality that God is going to do what is necessary for us no matter what. He is ready to hear. He is ready to respond. And here is Jesus giving a parable about a neighbor who regardless of inconvenience acts without shame, acts for the sake of not getting shame. Another commentator that I found and ran across is this fellow named David Anderson who made a point in his article about commitment to friendship. Here that's what is being brought about is it's not merely because he's his friend, but because he wants to act and give his duty and act without shame. That there's friendship and there's commitment and that commitment is really hard. Commitment is truly hard. We like to think of it in positive terms as, oh, it's easy to be committed to a friend, to have a good friend. But what happens when tough times come? Do you throw off that friend or do you enter into the struggle with them? Do you remain committed, committed to your friend even though it's utterly inconvenient? utterly painful even if it means putting your own personal feelings aside putting your wants aside to do what is necessary commitment means duty and duty is necessary even when you don't feel like it on the surface something deeper exists besides those surface feelings there is a deeper sense of being a deeper sense of want a deeper sense of action and desire that goes on below the surface of our feelings and that is duty. And commitment brings that sense of duty to another. Even when you don't want to help, even when it is inconvenient, you will push forward 
because of your sense of duty, because of your desire to honor your commitment, because of your desire to do that which is right for your friend in need. Even if on the surface we don't want to, we're not merely surface beings and that's why we can push forward and it's the good thing to do. We so often say, like, well, if you don't really want to do something, then don't do it. That's terrible advice when something needs to be done. If the house needs to be cleaned, I have to suck it up and do it. Even if I'm tired, even if I don't want to, it has to be done. And so my duty is to clean, my duty is to help, my duty is to do so many things that I don't want to do. But I want to be honorable to those I love and care about. I want to act well to them. And so that duty, that commitment, that harshness of commitment drives us forward. And so Anderson says, to quote him, Christ goes on then to indicate that when the ease and kindness and friendship, that he's not going to do it because of friendship, would not cause the sleeper to help the host, the harsh commitment of his friendship, that desire to honor, that desire to fulfill duty, that will drive the sleeper to act. Commitment in friendship makes the neighbor get up. Commitment makes a friend do what he does not always desire to do. And that's the point of this parable. That it's about the fact that the neighbor gets up and does what is needed. He doesn't care, <clears throat> he doesn't care that it's inconvenient to himself. He just does it out of commitment, out of a sense of honor, out of a desire to not act shamefully toward his friend. And there's still a negative sense there because he's also not wanting people to talk about him. He's not wanting shame brought on him from others. And so he does what needs to be done. He does it to accomplish his honor, to accomplish his duty to the world and to his friend. And we see this in the final section here before we get back to even saying anything about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus lays it out in the final section. Even a fallen father will give good gifts if his child asks for food, he'll give food. He won't give him something evil because the father is supposed to be committed to his children. He doesn't desire to do wrong on purpose. And we know it's not perfectly true because we're in a fallen world. But for the sake of the parable, Jesus flattens it out and says, you know what a father's supposed to do. And you know even a bad father, even an evil father in this world is still going to do good. Because you're all evil, you're all broken, you're all tainted by sin, and yet even in the midst of that tainting by sin, you know how to give a good gift to your child. How much more will God who isn't fallen, how much more will an unfallen, glorious being give all good things to you? The one who provides everything for you to begin with, how much more is he going to give what you need? If a fallen father can give what a child needs, how much more is this God who created everything and is redeeming you, how much more will He give you what you need? And what you need is the Holy Spirit. Whatever you ask at the bottom of it is the Holy Spirit acting and working. And so we can come to God as Father because He's greater than our earthly fathers. He has made us children in Jesus Christ. He'll respond to us and give us what is truly needed. And that's why Jesus opens the Lord's Prayer with Father. To show that He is the greatest Father of all. He is the Father upon whom all of our fatherly actions are to be based. And if this Father is one who will give us 
our daily bread, who will forgive us of our sins, who will show mercy and love, who will give to us Himself through His Son, Jesus. How much more can we ask of Him? How much more will He act in a greater and more glorious way than our own fallen earthly fathers do? He gives what our conscience is afraid to ask. He gives us the things that we are not worthy to ask for. We know we don't deserve God as our Father, and yet He makes Himself our Father. We have no standing with God, but He gives us standing in Jesus. As I said in Genesis 18, you see Abraham pleading with God. You see him persisting. You see him going to God multiple times and saying, what about this number of people? What about this number of people? What about this number of righteous people? He knew his nephew was there. He knew his nephew knew something of God. He knew his nephew was at least righteous by faith. And so he moved God through his prayers from 50 people down to 10. Why would he do that? Why would he keep going to God and asking him that? Because God is gracious. God is a merciful father. He knew that God would hear him because God wanted him to pray. God wanted him to speak to him. God wanted to draw near to him so that he could give out his concerns to God. And so God's honor and his righteousness are demonstrated by his actions in Jesus toward us. God does act without shame because he committed himself to a set of promises in the covenant that he gave to Abraham. He said, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Jesus comes. The Son is incarnated in order to fulfill that promise. God fulfills and honors his obligations and his commitments to Abraham by sending Jesus, who then takes what we lack and nails it to the cross with himself so that we can have that standing. He takes to himself what we lack and gives to us what he has in and of himself. He gives to us what he has in abundance so that we can now seek, so that we can now ask, so that we can now knock at heaven's door and know that God will answer and give us the good gift of the Spirit. God is the faithful one. God is the one who will act for us and hear us because he will act with honor. He will act with righteousness. Despite the inconvenience of becoming a man, despite the inconvenience of dying for our sins, God acts on our behalf and honors all of his promises to us. So may we be filled with his very spirit. May we receive that spirit as we ask him and seek after him. May we then go out and live before him that as he fulfills our needs and acts without shame, may we more and more learn to fulfill the needs of others, to fulfill our commitments, to act without shame because God has acted without shame for us in Jesus and sends us forth in his power to do that, renews us to do that, and enables us to do that so that all will be drawn to Jesus, so that Jesus will be known and his honor and his righteousness will be given to those who have no honor and who have no righteousness so that we can become children of the Father. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.